Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. My name is Claire Lehman and I am Editor-in-Chief of Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent, grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. Our podcast is a team effort and is jointly hosted by myself, Associate Editor Toby Young and Canadian Editor Jonathan Kay. You can support our podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash Quillette and becoming a monthly patron. By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter. Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm Jonathan Kay, hosting from Toronto. I've never met today's guest in person, despite the fact we both spent most of our lives in Montreal, where he's been teaching marketing at Concordia University for many years, and more recently we've both found ourselves on the same side of the culture wars over free speech and intellectual pluralism. Yet, despite the fact we've never met, I feel like Professor Gad Saad has been a constant presence in my life, thanks in part to his irrepressible daily presence on Twitter, where he's got more than 300,000 followers, which is a lot for a Canadian. That's like 3 million in American numbers. In his academic mode, Professor Saad pioneered the use of evolutionary psychology to model human behavior, but he also likes to mix it up with lay people. A few months ago, for instance, he authored a viral thread slapping down Hollywood actor-turned-progressive quasi-activist Seth Rogen, whom Saad accused of, quote, platitudinous virtue signaling. I should say that this was shortly before Rogen went after me on Twitter, and I slightly suspect that it was Rogen's wounded pride over Saad's treatment of him that motivated the actor's attack on me, though I can't prove as much. Anyway, Saad's new book is called The Parasitic Mind, How Infectious Ideas Are Killing Common Sense. And as readers will see from his fiery language, this is a guy who seems more interested in winning the culture war than in brokering an armistice. For instance, he's called some critics, quote, cerebral eunuchs. This week, I spoke to him by Zoom, a format that allowed him to use interesting visual props to make some of his points during our discussion. But don't worry, I will explain these where necessary. In your book, you talk about growing up during the Lebanese Civil War. By coincidence, I actually just did a story about a woman who grew up in Lebanon during the Civil War. This was Professor Rima Azar of Mount Allison University. She's somebody who got in trouble because she's against some of the tribalism that now infects progressive politics, especially the race politics. And she's seen what this kind of mentality does when it's applied as a governing ideology in a place like Lebanon. And I've actually spoken to a number of people, not just from Lebanon, but other Arab countries who here in Canada have become some of the biggest defenders of liberal values. And I'm wondering if there's some connection there because they have seen what the opposite of liberalism can do. One of the reasons that I chose to open up the first chapter of The Parasitic Mind with my personal history in Lebanon is precisely to make the point that you just made in your introduction, which is that if you understand what happens to a society when it is organized precisely along identity politic lines. Now, for your listeners and viewers who may not be familiar with the Lebanese context, within the constitution of Lebanon, everything is identity politics so that the president has to be of this religion, the prime minister has to be of that religion, the number of seats that you get in parliament is a function of which religious tribe you belong to. Every interaction in society is based on people to assort you into the right religious tribe. And then, of course, the end result is you get the Lebanese civil war. So for me, it's very disheartening to see that something that I escaped from 40 plus years ago 
is something that is now cloaked under the robe of progressivism. Nothing could be as unprogressive as rejecting individual dignity as the most important value on which a truly enlightened society should be built. I know you didn't come on the podcast expecting to talk about Lebanese politics, but I find Lebanon fascinating. All countries, whether democratic or not, the governance is based to some extent on unspoken or informal coalitions of tribes. And those tribes could be defined ideologically, they could be defined racially, they could be defined uh, language groups. Lebanon is an interesting case because it's this country where, as you say, constitutionally, it says the quiet part out loud. And it isn't just Shiites and Sunnis. There's different ancient Christian sects there. Uh, Maronites, I think Armenians. I'm I'm married to a Lebanese Armenian, by the way. I'm I'm glad I gave a shout out to, (laughs) to Armenian Christians. But it's interesting because it locks in explicitly differences that I feel like progressive politics are gravitating toward. Except it's done in a kind of informal, somewhat unspoken style. But in Lebanon, it's locked in because it's actually in the Constitution. Is it possible that in 50 years, the United States, you could see some version of that with blacks and Hispanics? Yes. You already see, I mean, you don't see it in the Constitution in the United States or in Canada, but you certainly see it in some of the organizations that define excellence in a society. Take, for example, universities where I reside, right? In the parasitic mind, I talk about idea pathogens. All the idea pathogens that I discuss all stem from the cesspool known as university settings, right? Because as I remind people, and as I think Orwell first remarked, it takes intellectuals to come up with really dumb ideas. So if you take, for example, universities today, Everything is organized along identity politic lines. Now, you would think five years ago, you would have thought, oh, this is just, again, gad sad, satirizing something. Well, it's not satirical anymore because when you apply for a research grant in Canada, and certainly now increasingly in the United States, it is built into the research application process to now adhere to identity politics There's one of two ways we're going to solve this problem. Either we're going to solve it by having these conversations like you and I are having, or eventually people are going to wake up and it will be house-to-house fighting. Now, people sometimes think I'm being hyperbolic when I predict this. Oh, come on. You really think that in Canada or the U.S. you'd ever have civil war? Well, I'm not saying that it's going to happen next Tuesday. But if you slowly eradicate all of the foundational values that have protected the West from sinking into what Lebanon became, eventually it will manifest itself in the exact same way that that trajectory has taken fold in every single place where you have identity politics, whether it be the the Balkans or it be the Rwandan genocide or it be Lebanon, you constantly reaffirm people along tribal lines and eventually they will not be very good neighbors. And so there is nothing more important than eradicating that cancer and, and truly convincing people that what matters most is individual dignity. When I decide whether I want to be friends with Jonathan Kay or not, I judge him based on the totality of his merits and flaws. I don't give a damn that he shares my religious heritage and that he's Jewish. Uh, There's a lot of Jews that I can't stand, and there's a lot of Orthodox Muslims that I absolutely love, notwithstanding the background that I grew up in Lebanon. Judge people as individuals. In your book, you talk about how people have to balance their emotions and their thoughts the case studies you present, you talk about Judge Kavanaugh, and then you had Donald Trump, of course. In regard to Donald Trump, people talk about Trump derangement syndrome on the left, 
But of course, you also have the opposite on the right. A lot of conservative friends I had, I mean, they went bananas over Trump in a positive way, and I couldn't have a conversation with them because they would deny reality, bending it in order to correspond with the nonsense Trump was saying. These perversions of thought and ideology, they afflict you don't like the, quote, both sidesism. It's something you rail against in your book. But when I look at my inbox during the Trump years, I saw a lot of both sidesism because both sides were nuts. I absolutely agree that distorted thinking occurs irrespective of your educational level, irrespective of which political tribe that you belong to. Now, just to, to kind of rehash the position that I took in the book regarding what you call both sidesism. The reason why I critique the left way more than I do the right, and then I'll come back to your general question, is because the idea pathogens that I discuss in The Parasitic Mind all stem from the university ecosystem that is completely dominated by leftist professors. So it's not that if I am a pancreatic cancer specialist, it doesn't mean that I negate the fact that diabetes is also a serious disease or melanoma is serious. It's just that in my practice as a pancreatic oncologist, that's what I focus on. So it is absolutely true that the right can be completely idiotic and parasitized by stupidity as well. Now, when it comes to the tension between thinking versus feeling, which serves as the theoretical framework for that chapter where I talk about Kavanaugh and Trump, what I'm arguing there is that often people do the following. They place the wrong tension between thinking versus feeling. We're not a thinking animal or a feeling animal. We're both. The challenge is to know when to activate the right system, right? So when I'm walking down the street and I decide to take a shortcut through a dark alley and I see young men loitering around, my heart will start beating faster. My blood pressure increases. I get a fear-based response that's an emotional-based response that makes perfect evolutionary sense in that case. But if I'm trying to solve a calculus problem, then all of the affective triggering is not going to help me solve that problem. So if we apply that insight to, say, Donald Trump, I think the problem, the reason why I was so indignant at many of my super, super smart progressive friends is because they weren't able to contextualize their hatred of Trump in policy decisions, right? It was always Trump is disgusting. I, 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 I get a visceral hatred of Trump. But he is kind of disgusting. There's a Yiddish word, narish. Do you remember, there's a thousand examples I could use, but remember the time there was, I believe he was a Pakistani-American war hero? Trump went after the guy's mom. Do you remember that? I do. He's obnoxious. He's rude. He's brash. There, I have now, just like Trump was asked to disavow white supremacy 8 million times, let me again state that Trump is hardly the model of elegance and social grace. Now, that notwithstanding, if I, for example, care, let's suppose my number one issue is that critical race theory not be introduced as a official doctrine with federal employees, then I might say, okay, well, Trump is grotesque. He lacks empathy. But hey, he's banning the preaching of mandatory training of critical race theory for federal employees, whereas Biden is sweet, gentle, and speaks about his favorite color being orange and his favorite ice cream. So he's so sweet as a grandfather, but he takes policy decisions that I'm completely against. Let me give you an example. I've done this many times, but it's worth repeating here for your Quillette audience if they don't know it. For a second, John, pretend that this is the cork of a wine bottle. Arabic is a very rich and powerful 
flowery language. Our listeners won't see the video. Tell me what you're holding up. I'm holding a memory stick and I'm asking you to pretend that it is the cork of a wine bottle. Okay, I only drink wine that comes out of cans or screw top, but I heard in fancy restaurants they sell the one with the, the cork, so I get it. Now, there's an expression in Arabic that says getting drunk by smelling the cork of the wine bottle. Say it in Arabic, because then I can get some kind of Canadian cultural grant for the podcast. Uh, you, so there are two ways you could say it. You could either say it, getting drunk by the little raisins, biskaru bil zbibe, or biskaru bil mfile. Like the, it's, it's either getting drunk by the small raisins or getting drunk by the actual cork, okay? It's basically saying that instead of actually having to go through the hard work of drinking a whole bottle of wine for you to get drunk, simply by whiffing the cork, I'm such a lightweight that I get drunk. But what does it mean in the context of Trump or Obama? So now for your auditory audience that can't see me doing it, let me describe what I'm doing. I'm taking a whiff of the memory stick and look, oh my God, Obama's got me so drunk. My God, that mellifluous voice. That radiant smile, he is so majestic. Now, every single syllable that he utters is platitudinous, but my God, is he majestic. Therefore, he must be saying something profound. On the other hand, let me take a whiff from the cork of Trump. He's an ogre. I agree with his policies, but he disgusts me. That's exactly the point of chapter two of the parasitic mind. Don't let your affective system guide you when you're dealing with political policy. For people at home, Professor Saad is a trained psychological professional, so he can take a hit off a USB stick and it's safe. But don't try this at home. Oh, that Jewish humor. Am I allowed to stereotype <laughs> Jewish humor if I'm Jewish? Yes. I know plenty of Lebanese people, and they kind of have the same sense of humor. Well, but Lebanese Jew is, is, a, is a perfect confluence. Let me tell you a, a very quick story. My second year of my MBA... And the food is exactly the same. The food is the same. Despite what people in both countries will claim. <laughs> it's the same food. But by the way, shawarma is Lebanese, it's not Israeli. So let's get that straight. <laughs> and hummus, and it's not hummus, hummus, it's hummus, pronounce it properly. But in any case, let me just tell you the story about my second year as an MBA student. So I was taking a managerial negotiations course where each class, the professor would have us do a, a class exercise and then some student would win the negotiations exercise of that day. There were maybe 40 students in the class. I win. The second week, we have another negotiations exercise. I win. So the professor comes up to me at the end of the second class and says, excuse me, do you, do you mind if I ask what your background is? I said, do you mean my, my academic background, which school I come from, from my undergrad? He goes, no, no, where, where are you from originally? Which, of course, today would get him fired because he's not allowed to ask such a question. Yeah, except then it was a conservative thought crime. Now it might be ultra progressive because maybe there was a special BIPOC facility or something. True, like true. And so I said to him, I'm Lebanese Jewish. He goes, Lebanese Jewish? What the hell are you doing in my class? What is it that I can teach you about negotiations? <laughs> All right. Some of the language you use in your book, you've used terms like grotesque. You're, you're a very colorful speaker, which makes you an entertaining podcast host. You talk about people who behave in an imbecilic fashion. I don't think you call people imbeciles, but you describe behavior as imbecilic. There's this whole trend, and I think it's yeah. it's happening on both sides, to give progressives credit. I think there's progressives who are trying to take down the temperature a little bit, who are saying, look, these terms aren't helpful. Let's try and understand each other. Do you worry that some of your culture war terminology, some of the language in your book, do you worry that maybe it's too much and that it's going to make it hard to mend fences with reasonable people in the progressive camp? Well, great question. And no, I don't worry, because here, here's how I'm going to answer this. My personhood and yours are multifaceted. They're, 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 they're comprised of multiple attributes. 
Uh, I can be loving and kind when I'm tucking my children to bed, or I can be violent and unforgiving if you attack me. I didn't suddenly become violent or not. It's the situation that demanded. Dispositionally, I'm kind and peaceful, but I can become aggressive and intolerant if you attack me or attack my wife and children. Therefore, I can have a multiplicity of persuasive strategies that I use when trying to engage the public to change their minds. I can be as austere and professorial as you could imagine, as I have in 27 year career as a professor, or I can mix it up in Twitter. I don't need to always be smoking a pipe while looking in the air and pontificating to appear professorial. As a matter of fact, some of probably my biggest impactful messages have come when I use satire, when I mock something. As a matter of fact, earlier today, I released a clip where I honored three of my female heroines, Princess Harry, Princess <laughs> Meghan, and Queen Oprah. So someone might come and say, but isn't it beneath you, professor, to use mockery? Uh, no, it isn't. Some of the most important influential thought changers in the world have been satirists. So sometimes I could use the word imbecilic because I exactly mean it to be that. Sometimes I could use fancy multisyllabic word that gets you to go to the thesaurus. I'm not unifaceted. I'm very confident in who I am, and therefore I can use all of these approaches. It is akin to the cork. I'm going to bring it out again. He's on video, and I can tell you he's taking another hit. I think you're addicted to USB. <laughs> Here, I'm thinking, <laughs> can't you be a bit nicer, professor, and not use words? By the way, I've been told by senior administrators in academia, too bad you really damaged your brand when you went after someone and called him a cerebral eunuch. That's harsh. Okay, maybe. But can I just tell you something, John? You should see what led me to me deploying that insult. In other words, I never attack people who haven't, as a first step, been constantly insulting me and attacking me. It's as though you you try to mug me in an alley, and then finally when I attack you back violently, you go, but come on, I'm a victim, why are you attacking me? Well, I mean, if you spend six hours insulting me on Twitter, sorry, I happen to be a Lebanese honey badger, I'm then coming after you. This episode of the Quillette Podcast is brought to you by Skillshare, the online learning community that offers you the chance to learn new skills in a more structured and supportive way than you can get from just watching how-to videos on YouTube. None of us really know what 2021 will bring, but if you want to make the most of it, whatever it brings, consider joining up at Skillshare to develop your talent, learn new skills, and make yourself more marketable. If you surf the Skillshare site, you'll find that a lot of the most popular topics involve exploring your creative side, such as graphic design, logos and branding, photography, illustration, and creative writing. But you'll also find a lot of stuff that's more off the beaten path. For instance, I've spent a lot of time on Skillshare trying to get better at chess, and I love the fact that all of the material is action-oriented. There's always a project or a goal, and you're part of a larger group of other Skillshare members supporting you as you learn the material. Explore your creative side at Skillshare.com slash Quillette. That's Q-U-I-L-L-E-T-T-E. -E. Skillshare.com slash Quillette and get a free trial of Skillshare's premium membership. Thank you to Skillshare for supporting our podcast. And now back to our show. My problem with the eunuch metaphor is that 
eunuchs can't procreate, but unfortunately, a lot of the people who you're describing are quite fecund when it comes to spreading their intellectual ideas. The problem I have from a strategy point of view is, like, take hockey or any other sport, is sometimes a player on one team will be violent toward another player and the refs don't see, and then the guy who's victimized by this he gets angry and he he whacks the other guy and he's the guy who gets the penalty. True. And the refs and the crowd, they might not see the first incident. All they see is the retaliation and he becomes the bad guy, the guy who retaliated. And by the way, I think that's the case for a lot of stuff maybe you see on YouTube is you see someone doing something violent and you don't see the 10 minutes that preceded that. Aren't you worried that you are that guy who comes in late in the video and is using this really strong language to retaliate against all the stuff that, yeah, of course, I, I know this has been said to you, but maybe a lot of the readers who are coming to you, they don't appreciate the strength of the vitriol that's been directed against you. All they're seeing is the tone in your book. And are you worried they'll, they'll think it's a little strong? Frankly, no. I, I appreciate your point. I get what you're saying. But as I said, there's a whole panoply of ways to convince people. So for example, in chapter seven of my book, where I talk about a really powerful epistemological tool to try to persuade people about what's truthful or not. There I talk about nomological networks of cumulative evidence. You couldn't get more professorial, scientific, and epistemologically sound. So again, I think that I deployed, like, look, I'm a professor of marketing ultimately, right? And so one of the things that you better know how to do if you wanna persuade people, whether to buy your product or service or live a better healthy lifestyle is to know which target segment you should approach using which message. There isn't a singular optimal message. And I could show you emails where people say, I loved your book precisely because you could navigate through multi facets of your personhood. I mean, they didn't use those words, but that's exactly what they're intimating, right? I could be very scientific. I could give you a harrowing personal anecdote. I could be funny. I could be self-deprecating. I could be faux grandiose. One final question, and in this one, I want to draw on your experience and your training as a professional psychologist. Seth Rogen, why such a dick? <laughs> well, and I'm guessing the reason why you're saying this is because we both have had the distinct pleasure of interacting with him. Is that yeah? Except, <laughs> except you won your. <laughs> I think. I mean, it, in a sense, it speaks so. to the ending of my previous reply to you when I said, "I am who I am. I'm confident." Who I think it's because ultimately Seth Rogen doesn't have a strong personhood, right? He, in, in Arabic, you say shakhsiyye. Shakhsiyye is the totality of your personhood, right? So I navigate through the world with a strong sense of self. I know that I have many flaws, but I also know that I have worthy qualities that hopefully people will see in me. So I don't have fatal fissures in my personhood. I think someone like Seth Rogen does. I don't mean to get all Freudian or psychoanalytic on him, but you asked the question. I think ultimately he doesn't know who he is. He really is still 12 years old. And therefore, when he lashes out on you or me, it is a reflection ultimately of his insecurity. It's an ego defensive strategy. <laughs> they, had, they had me on Fox News to talk about this, of all things. And the host of that show was trying to get me to rail against Seth Rogen. The weird thing about Rogan is he's not this guy who used to be famous 30 years ago and is now just some sort of B-lister who's mouthing off. In, in very recent memory, he's produced really good movies. I find him very funny, and I'm not trained in psychology like you, but I actually find he has a very strong and well-defined presence on screen, which is why I found it so weird that he was doing all this stuff. This is a pop psychology thing, but you get these people who are extremely famous 
and they're in their 30s or 40s and they're like, what's it all about? Do people just like me because I have a funny face? And, and they get existential. They worry that they're not being taken seriously for their intellect and they're just playing the same character over and over. And they become very insecure, but like Hollywood makes them like that. And maybe you and I would become like that if we, I don't know, if we were, instead of doing what you do and what I do, I don't know, we were like famous sitcom actors or something like that. You know, there would come a certain age where we want to be taken seriously as, as poets, or I think the New York Times just profiled his pottery or something. How much of this isn't even about him, but it's just about this kind of Hollywood machine? I mean, you're 100% spot on. And as a matter of fact, I wrote more than 10 years ago titled The Narcissism and Grandiosity of Celebrities on my Psychology Today column, uh, and it was subsequently published in the Psychology Today magazine, I specifically make the argument that you just enunciated. So, so as you probably know, there's the phenomenon of survival guilt when plane crashes and the guy next to you died, but you somehow came out with minor injuries. And then you really experience this existential guilt. I mean, what, what, what's so special about me that I survived while this lovely guy next to me passed away. It's something that's very difficult for people to, to process. And so I draw from this insight to argue that celebrities suffer from existential guilt. So rather than survivor guilt, they literally are existentially guilty precisely because, as your intuition was right, they realize in the deep recesses of their private thoughts that they are not worthy of the adulation that they're getting. And I'm not belittling the fact that it's wonderful to be a, a talented actor or a comedian, but you realize that maybe I'm not worth $80 million like Seth Rogen is. Maybe people shouldn't be screaming and jumping to touch me if I'm Tom Cruise. I really feel like I'm a fraud. And therefore, one of the ways that I can reconcile that is to actually demonstrate to the world that I'm actually much more than just a silly actor or I'm or a singer. Madonna is gonna solve the radioactive problem in lakes through her Kabbalah juice, right? She is someone serious, right? She is someone to be, she's not just the girl who sang like a virgin. And so I think it's exactly what you said. If anybody's interested in reading more about it, just enter narcissism and grandiosity of celebrities. I have a whole article on exactly the question that you asked. Thank you for affirming the fact that I have amazing instincts as a psychologist. <laughs> but the, the ironic thing with Seth Rogen is that he has no reason to be insecure. He's a gifted actor. He's appeared in Superbad and Sausage Party, which I liked. I know I got a lot of static. Uh, this is the end. I mean, that's the thing. This is the end was an unusually self-aware film about dick Hollywood comedians. Right. It was very meta. It was kind of like these Hollywood celebs playing themselves, and it was super self-aware. So he's like the last person you would expect to lack self-awareness. But then, you know, that was eight years ago. The irony is, it's that doubt that's sabotaging himself, instead of just trusting the fact that, hey, I'm funny, I'm brilliant at being funny. You're, I know you're an evolutionary psychologist, you know, you don't spend your entire life listening to people complain on the couch and stuff. But do you encounter people like that? They're good at what they do, but then they sabotage themselves because they think they need to be doing something more? I do. And by the way, I should mention that the, the conversation we're having now should not be confused with stay in your lanism, right? As a matter of fact, I rail against that, right? So I argue that professors should not be just commenting about the very narrow areas that they are experts on if they have well-reasoned arguments. It's a question of what propels you. Exactly. 
If you're being propelled by insecurity that your ordinary métier is worthless or shallow, that's the wrong reason to get into another thing. You should get into the other thing because you have an organic desire to do And so. I think if you've done the homework that's necessary to be able to intelligently weigh in in that other area outside of your usual lane. So I'm not arguing that actors or comedians should not be weighing in on important political issues. Have at it. It's a democratic process. Everybody is welcome to share their ideas. But just don't come from a position, I hate the term, of privilege, where privilege in this case is because there are 60 people who walk around catering to every one of your whims because you are a privileged actor, you suddenly have an overinflated sense of your brilliance, right? Madonna is never told what you just said is moronic, right? Instead, the world goes around making sure that the color blue is not to be found in her hotel room because she hates the color blue or whatever it is, right? Because she's a diva. And so she she doesn't have the necessary feedback loop that modulates her behavior. For 25, 30 years, she thinks she is a queen, as does Rogan, as do all the rest of the, the imbeciles. Forgive me, I use the colorful term like imbecile. For those people with different senses of self, okay? So, <laughs> so what I'm arguing is have epistemic humility. If you right now, John, ask me things in evolutionary psychology that I think I truly know a lot about, I will give you an answer with all of the swagger that you might expect of me. On the other hand, if you tell me, hey, what do you think about Justin Trudeau's legalization of marijuana? What are the pros and cons? I would with complete humility say to you, I simply don't know enough about this issue to be able to offer you an intelligent position. So part of having epistemological swagger is having epistemic humility. And I think what those narcissistic actors and celebrities don't have is that necessary humility. Because they are famous, they are simply smarter than the rest of you, great unwashed. You know, I got to say, I've done a lot of podcasts where we bounce back and forth on conversational topics, but this one was pretty wide-ranging. For people who stay through the Lebanese Civil War stuff, they'll enjoy Seth Rogen as a chaser. Are you done with that story, or is it still going on between you and him? He and I had this long DM exchange, even though he was rude to me online, uh, and I didn't appreciate it because he's got something like 9 million followers. Subsequent to that, he sent me a direct message and explain to me why he freaked out at me. We actually went back and forth by DM for a long time, and I'd love to say that it ended in a friendly way, and we respect each other's positions, but it actually wasn't like that. He doubled down, even, even in private message, he doubled down on the idea that my mildly Canadian conservative take on things, that somehow I'm supporting white supremacy because I'm not a full-throated defender of the most dogmatic Hollywood progressive position. In this DM exchange, he was very lucid and actually quite respectful nominally, but there was no self-awareness that he was spouting this really rigid dogma. And it was sort of like, you're either with us or you're against us. And if you deviate at all from progressive Kant, it means you're somehow abetting white supremacy. It mirrored exactly what I heard from hawkish conservatives after 9-11. Because you remember George W. Bush gave that famous speech. It says, you're either with us or against us. Sure. Which, in retrospect, was, was creepy. It's possible to hate terrorism, but also love civil liberties. And George W. Bush's attorney general, John Ashcroft, if I remember correctly, when people started talking about civil liberties, he dismissed it, I think the phrase was, chasing phantoms of lost liberty. And that's exactly the mirror image of what you're now seeing. I'm going to call them the Roganites. Not Joe Rogan. 
Seth Rogen. I live in the worst possible ecosystem when it comes to all of these idea packages. Academia is the worst. It's where it all starts and then it flows everywhere else. If I showed you some of the people who were personal friends of mine, they've disassociated themselves from me because I hold positions that offend their political sensibilities. And now again, you and I are Canadian. I, I keep reminding people, I don't have a dog in the fight when it comes to Trump in that I, you know, I love him. I have posters of him in my bedroom that my wife and I use as marital aid. I don't care about Trump. What I care about is hypocrisy. I care about, so when you have a supposed intellectual who basically created his whole brand image around being restrained and intellectual and meditating, and then he spends four years in a astonishing bout of hysteria when it comes to Trump. I mean, literally every single day, the economy was going to collapse. He's going to usher nuclear war. It's going to be a dictatorial regime. Martial law is going to be instituted. When you speak with that language that is so removed from anything resembling reality, I have no respect for you. And so when I satirize that, I'm not defending Trump. I'm saying you're supposed to be an intellectual. Modulate your language. If you're a regular listener to the Quillette podcast, you'll be familiar with BetterHelp, one of our original advertisers. Well, thanks to everything that's happened since early 2020 and the stresses that the pandemic has put on everyone, the online therapy services at BetterHelp are more relevant and in demand than ever. BetterHelp will help you unlock the tools you need to help with motivation, depression, anxiety, battling your temper, stress, dealing with insecurity in relationships or at work, whatever you need. Especially at a time like this, no one should be anxious about admitting that they're going through normal human struggles, because you deserve to be happy. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. And you don't even have to see anyone on camera if you don't feel comfortable doing so. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. Join the millions of people who are seeing what therapy is really about. And Quillette Podcast listeners get 10% off their first month by visiting betterhelp.com slash Quillette. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Quillette. Thanks to BetterHelp for their sponsorship. And now back to the Quillette Podcast. Gad Saad is the host of the popular YouTube show, The Sad Truth. He's also a blogger for Psychology Today and is a professor of marketing at the John Molson School of Business at Concordia University in my hometown of Montreal. His new book is called The Parasitic Mind, How Infectious Ideas Are Killing Common Sense. Thanks so much for being on the Quillette Podcast. Thank you, John. It was delightful. Cheers. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. If you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Do you like what you're hearing? Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to Quillette.com where you will find more content. <laughs>